morning. It's good to see you all again. It's been, well, I don't know how many years now. I think it's been about three, maybe four years since last I was here. Um, a lot has happened since then. Um, last time I was here, I was assisting Andy Christofides in St. Melons um, in Cardiff. Um, he's now my father-in-law. Um, <laughs> he's a bit worrying. But, uh, but we also... Um, have two lovely daughters now, so I'm in a house full of women, which is interesting at times. Um, Emmy is four and a half, and Heidi, little Heidi, is 19 months, going on 20 months. Um, and they're very lovely. So we Americans work quick, you see. So I've only been here seven years in Britain. So, um, but it's good to be back, and I hope that this morning will be of eternal value to all of us. Um, before we look at the book of Ephesians, let's just pray one more time. Let's seek the Lord. Our eternal God, we turn our hearts to you now. And we pray, God, that you would stoop down from on high. Oh God, that you would come and meet with undeserving creatures like us. God, we are not the kind of people that you would have preferred. Lord, there is nothing in us to gain your attention, to draw your eye, God. You have loved us with an indiscriminate love because your word says you are love. You have loved us because you have loved us. And oh God, we thank you that because of this great love, Lord, that you have sent your Son, God, to glorify your name through the redemption of unworthy creatures like us. Lord, we are mere spectators in this glorious work of grace. And we pray, God, that as we now look into your holy words, oh God, that you would draw us, Lord, beyond that sacred page, that we might seek you. We are thankful for the words and the doctrines and the truth, God, but what are all these apart from the reality of you, God? Father, we ask that as we've gathered here this morning now and many of us prepared to come to church, Lord, we pray, God, that you would come to church. God, we take this for granted so often, Father, that, that we just expect you to show up, God. But you are a sovereign being and you draw near whenever you desire and delight to draw near and you withdraw yourself whenever you delight or want to withdraw yourself for whatever purposes that might be for. But we thank you, God, that we always know that your scriptures speak to us saying that this is for our good, whatever it may be, and for your glory most of all. So help us, God, now as we open up the scriptures, come in the power of your spirit and enlighten both preacher and hearer alike. Apart from you, we are nothing. We can do nothing. We are mere branches. You are the vine. The only life we have is in you. Father, we pray. God, we beg. We are beggars of grace and mercy. But Lord, we are also children who have a father who has time and time again proven himself to lavish upon his children the riches that, is, that are in the beloved. So, oh God, pull back the curtain as it were, pull back the veil, 
And let us see something of the measure of the worth of King Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 1, I've been given the task of, well, two, two things really this morning. Um, I am conscious that this is the first of a series that you're beginning in the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesian church. Um, and I want to give a sort of a, an overview so that we understand um, the book of Ephesians from the beginning. So that's sort of task one. Task two then is to take the first 14 verses. And um, obviously we can't plumb the depths of all of it. There's a lot there in those first 14 verses that I would love to go into. Um, But what we'll have to do is take them as a whole and seek to find what we can learn from all 14 verses as a whole, as it were. Uh, Let's begin with Ephesus. Ephesus, if you have ever read some of the commentaries or any of the history, we know that Ephesus was set in what is now modern-day Turkey. And it was an ancient Greek city. Ephesus was a major player in the Roman Empire. It's important for us to understand this. During the time that Paul lived, Ephesus was, was quite a major city. It was the capital city of a region that was called Asia Minor. And it was a sort of a melting pot of pagan worship. Greek gods, Roman gods were all sort of jumbled together in this big pot. And Ephesus, as a result, in many, like today, in many cosmopolitan cities, it was a, uh, you often find big cities to be a major hub of education and learning and of wisdom. And especially in Paul's day, this was a great desire and pursuit of many a people. And Ephesus was one of those cities that was a hub of education. Now, when the Apostle Paul was on his way back to a place called Antioch, during what we call his second missionary journey, he stopped at this place, Ephesus. And he went there for just a short while, and he spent some time there ministering amongst the people. And he had to go, but he would be back. And he came back. And so when we read through the book of Acts, uh, we oftentimes refer to Paul's first, second, third missionary journeys. Well, it was during um, his third missionary journey. This time he goes out and he goes to Ephesus and he ends up spending around about two to three years in Ephesus. Imagine having the great Apostle Paul for three years among you. That's what these believers here in this church had. Now, during Paul's time among the Ephesians, there were a number of extraordinary and unusual things that occurred in Ephesus amongst these people, which served to establish this small church in a massive city. Now, you can read about it in Acts chapter 19. We'll look a little bit at this as we go on. But what we find is that there are a number of the followers of John the Baptist who were converted. So if you go to Acts 19 verses 1 to 7, you read about this. Um, What we find then Paul doing is that he goes, and this is Paul's pattern. He had a pattern for every city that he went into, every place that he went. It didn't matter how much he was persecuted. He would do the same thing over again. He was not a clever guru of evangelism. He didn't put his hope in techniques. 
or events or things like that, Paul does something extraordinary. He goes into the local synagogue. Sorry, it's not extraordinary, very ordinary. He goes into the local religious building, as it were, and the synagogue, the local synagogue. And for three months in Ephesus, he seeks to reason with the Jews about the kingdom of God. Now, these are people who were extremely religious, a bit like you and I. And he seeks to reason with them that Jesus is the promised Messiah of their Old Testament scriptures, that they themselves hold as their holy book. And he does this for about three months until the religious people get tired of him. And they kick him out. They conspire against him. But what you find is as a result of his three months there, there were a handful of people who were changed. And so Paul eventually takes these new Christians and he begins to meet in the local lecture hall. I don't know if you have a sort of a town hall here. I imagine you probably do. Um, But he goes to something kind of like that, a, a place that was well known for people. You didn't have to be a Christian. You could have been of any religion, of any sort of background of learning, and you could go to these halls and you could speak and give lectures at these halls and it was a sort of come and go as you please kind of a place so many a people on certain days would come into these lecture halls to see what's going on today sometimes you'd have people only here and as they walk by but this is where he goes he goes to the local lecture hall now it's important for us to understand as we begin this book of Ephesians that that this is quite a significant step okay Because what this means is that a number of people, both Jews and Gentiles, whether they were academic and intelligent or your common, stereotypically unintelligent person, both were able to hear the word of the Lord. Because there would be people who would go into the lecture hall who wouldn't normally go into the local synagogue. So this is an important step in Paul's ministry here in Ephesus to go to this lecture hall. And to begin to spread the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so after some time of sort of laboring in this capacity among these new Christians and those who were attending the meetings in this lecture hall, a number of things begin to happen in the town of Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. In verses 11 and 12 of Acts 19, we find that there are some unusual miracles that occur there. I would encourage you maybe this afternoon to go read about it, and then you can go ask your elder all the questions that you want about these miracles. uh, But then what we find in verses 13 to 16 is that there are also some very strange and extraordinary events that begin to take place. In verses 17 to 20 of Acts 19, we find that Luke, as he writes that book of Acts, um, sorcerers in the town, in the city begin confessing all of their dark practices and they begin to become converted to the faith. And all of these extraordinary things happen. Unusual miracles, crazy events, sorcerers, people known for their dark arts, becoming converted. And eventually all of this breaks out into a riot. A riot breaks out in the community because the local shops in the community were making quite a killing selling little religious trinkets of the local pagan goddess Artemis, or we 
often commonly know of her as Diana. And they were selling and making a decent income by this. So you can imagine that when people begin to see the emptiness of the empty gods of the cultures around them, you can imagine how annoyed these local shop sellers, I mean, this is affecting their income, their livelihood. So they get annoyed by this, a riot breaks out. And all in all, what we see in Acts 19 with the church of Ephesus is that God, in the city of Ephesus, God was moving. God was active now in what was otherwise a a, a hub of the enemy. All around the community, the spiritual realities of Christ become much more clear than they had ever been before. The realities of the living God, not the dead gods of these idols, but the living God. These, the reality of that begins to make itself felt in this city, so much so that as we read through Acts 19, you begin to realize that the very forces of evil seem to begin trembling and fighting against this growing influence of the presence of the clean, holy, living God in the city of Ephesus. And then eventually Paul moves on to another place. But he leaves behind this little fledgling church. And towards the end of his third missionary journey, Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem and he meets with the elders of the church of this, of, uh, of this church here in Ephesus. He meets with them in a town called Miletus and has quite a moving talk with them. You can read of it in Acts 20, beginning at verse 17. And that seems to be the last time that he sees these people face to face. But then we have now this letter. Now, when Paul writes this letter, he was imprisoned in Rome. And Paul seems to write, when you read through the letter, he seems to write in anticipation of a problem that would begin to affect a number of the new churches uh, that begin sort of popping up all over the Roman Empire. If you've ever read Colossians, you'll notice that Colossians reads somewhat similarly, similarly to, to this letter. And there's a reason for that. It's a common problem. Paul needs to deal with this. He sees it, as it were, a problem coming on the horizon, and he's seeking to, to invest into these people a safeguard, as it were. And so, and to encourage the people to not leave their first love, who was Christ, he writes to encourage them to follow him, no matter the cost, outside or within. And so, in chapter 1 of the letter to the Ephesian, Paul spells out, for this church in Ephesus, but this letter was also intended for some of the surrounding churches in the area as well. This was what we call a circular letter that was sent around to all the various churches around. Paul begins to spell out for these churches a few things. In chapter 1, he spells out the character of the God that they belong to. He then moves on to, his, to this God's eternal purposes in Christ. His son. And then he moves on to show how all of this related to them as believers. 
Now, did you catch that? My friends, this letter was intended for believers. And I'm conscious here this morning that not everyone here may be believers. There may be some here this morning among us who are not believers, and you know you're not a believer. And there may be some who just aren't sure. There may be some here this morning who are convinced that they have walked with God for years. But the God that they have been walking with is a God of their imagination, not the God of the Bible. And so the first thing we need to be clear about this morning is that these great realities that we're about to look at in a sort of general way, these realities found within this letter, and particularly chapter 1, these realities are for the believer. And the great shepherd of the sheep, Christ, knows his sheep. He knew his sheep then, and he knows them now today. And those who are his sheep, they know his voice. And this morning, when the Master speaks, if you're one of His sheep, your heart will begin to burn. There will be a stirring within you. Your will will begin to melt before Him and be willing to submit to King Jesus, to His Word of Truth. But this morning, there may be some here this morning who are strangers to His grace. And those of you here who may be strangers of this shepherd king, how things are different for you. Do you understand? Through the preaching of God's word, you may find here this morning your heart become hardened to these things. You may find that as the Lord begins to speak, his voice, it doesn't stir within you submission and love for Christ. It may stir within you anger. But it won't be an anger for sin. It'll be an anger towards Christ himself, maybe even his messenger. Or maybe you might find that the voice of God stirs within you remorse over some things. But my friends, remorse is not the same thing as repentance. And I want you to know this morning, if that's you, if you're here this morning... Just a sample of what you hear from chapter 1 this morning. These things, as you listen, these things you have no right to whatsoever because you are outside of Christ. Until you are willing to lay down your pride and surrender your will to Christ, these things are not for you. You are like a... You are like a An orphan child standing outside in the cold. And this morning to you is a bit like looking through a window into a home where there's warmth and love and family gathered together. But you're out in the cold. But my friends, there's a door. Christ is that door. And you can come in. Don't stay outside. But if that is you, as long as you're outside, and you refuse to lay down your pride and surrender your will to Him, then you have no right to any of these things. Now, with that being said, there are a number of things, as I said, I want us to just look at here in the first 14 verses. And so the first thing I want us to consider is what God gives to these Ephesians in exchange 
for sin. He gives himself. Do you understand this? I mean, really. God gives himself to these believers in exchange for their sin. Think about it. Have you ever wondered why? If you knew nothing about the history of Paul, have you ever wondered, or have you ever been struck by the fact you would never have guessed that this was a letter written from prison, would you? If you just read it, knowing nothing of Paul, you wouldn't know that. Some of the greatest works of Christians have been written from prison, haven't they? Pilgrim's Progress. The great John Bunyan writes it from prison. If you've ever read the great letters of Samuel Rutherford, his best, choicest, most Christ-exalting letters are those that he writes from Aberdeen in Scotland when he was imprisoned, away from his congregation that he loved dearly in Anworth in South Scotland. Paul is writing from prison. I mean, we wouldn't know that, would we? Just reading the letter on the surface. But there was something about these Ephesian people, these Ephesian Christians, that stirred Paul's heart. (coughs) Remember, Paul was not a robot in the hand of the Holy Spirit writing this letter. The Holy Spirit inspired the writers to write the scriptures. But they themselves, as human beings, were involved themselves. Their wills were involved as well. Gripped and inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's an extraordinary thing. Paul was stirred in his heart for these people. And he writes such a spiritually rich letter. Have you ever thought, could it be that God intended to pay them back a hundred times over what they gave up? What do I mean? Well, do you remember, again, going back to Luke, Acts chapter 19, when Luke writes... Listen to verses 18 to 20. I'll just read and You can turn there or you may just want to listen. Verses 18 to 20. Listen to what Luke writes. Many also of those who had believed, this is in Ephesus, kept coming. And they were confessing and they were disclosing their practices. They were fessing up. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. And in this way, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Remember, one piece of silver equaled round about one day's wages. And he quotes 50,000 pieces of silver. I'm not a maths genius, but I just did a little calculation. Very simple calculation. This is somewhere between 120 to 140 years worth of wages. Worth of books that these people burn. Clearly, think about it, how many books that is. Clearly, these people in this town, remember, this is a cosmopolitan city, a hub of education and learning, a lot of value put on intellect, a lot of value put upon learning and the pursuit of knowledge, some higher knowledge. These people would often open themselves up to all sorts of things that promised to to give them some sort of higher knowledge. 
And therefore, there's all these practices and dark magic. These people value their pursuit of this higher knowledge, even if it be by superstitious means. And yet here we find them burning it all for Christ. Isn't that glorious? They have a new treasure, don't they? They have turned their eyes upon Jesus. They have looked full in his wonderful face. And what has happened? The things of earth have grown strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But is that it? Some people think that's all there is to Christianity. You get worked up so much so that you're willing to sacrifice everything. And so you do. And then Christians are left without nothing, without anything at all. What a poor thing it is to be a Christian, just to have to give up everything for this maybe flash in a pan feeling of Christ. But is that it? Not at all. Did God leave these people with empty bookshelves? No. What did they get in return? They get the letter to the Ephesians. They get this letter that we get to read. The highest knowledge of all, the knowledge of God himself. All of their previous knowledge was but child's play to this. Do you remember what Paul said to the Galatians in chapter one in his introduction? Again, we're thinking about what these people got in exchange for sin. Listen to Paul's words to the Galatians. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave heaven. No, who gave himself. Really, that's what's heaven, isn't it? It's heaven without Christ. He gave himself for our sins. What an exchange. They get the living God. And he gets their sin. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, is some of the most Christ-centered, God-exalting passages in all the scripture. And it's all theirs to live upon. Just think about the wealth of the spiritual knowledge that is found within these passages. I'm, I'm just going to give you a list. I made a list. This is why we can't go into depth, because I'm going to give you a list of just 17 things that I found. There may be more. Listen, election. This is all found within this one chapter. Holiness. I'm going to stop counting with my fingers because I don't have enough. Sanctification. Predestinating love. Spiritual adoption. Free grace. Redemption, forgiveness, divine provision, spiritual enlightenment and insight, promised future grace and perfection, spiritual inheritance, prevenient grace, in other words, grace which goes before, faith, assurance, through the sealing of the Spirit, understanding, and glory. Those are just 17 things that I found. We could take a Sunday for each one of those. My friends, going from their magic books to this, and we've only looked at the first chapter, 
This would have been like going from comic books to William Shakespeare. It would have been like growing up thinking that comic books were a real reflection of the English language. When really, we need to get our heads around Shakespeare if we're going to appreciate the English language. And I mean proper English, not American English. <laughs> I mean, there's no comparison, is there? There's no comparison. Look what they get in exchange for forsaking their sin in such a manifest way. They're burning their books in the community. And they get this wonderful treasure trove. Letter to the Ephesians from the Apostle Paul. The second thing this morning that I want us to also consider in these, that, that's found here in these first 14 verses is I want you to consider the reality. This is oftentimes something that is overlooked, but it's there. It's very clear if you pay attention. There's nothing novel here. My friends, right thinking leads to right living. We get this so backwards today, don't we? In Christianity. We always start at the wrong end of the stick. I feel a little bit bothered. I come to church. I feel like something should happen. Uh, what should I do? Preacher, you just tell me what I need to do. And I'll be sorted. Just, just help me out. Just give me a little... A little boost, as it were, and tell me what I need to do. I feel like I need to do something. Listen to the words of A.W. Tozer from the book Knowledge of the Holy, a wonderful little book. My favorite American. What a person thinks about God is the most important thing about them. Is that how you think about yourself? Is that how we think about ourselves? That what we think of God is the most important thing about us? Or is there something else that stands out? Is there something else that stands out to you in your life? And you might say, actually, this is the most important thing about me. This is what makes me, me. This is what makes me stand out from all the rest. Is it the knowledge of God? I mean, do you understand? It matters very little what your church documents might say about what you think of God. It matters very little what your church website, and I looked at it just yesterday. It matters very little what those eight things on the website say about what you believe as a church. It matters very little whether you subscribe to the FIEC statement of faith, which you do. It's on the website. I saw it. All of that means very little, really. Again, listen to the words of A.W. Tozer, this voice from the past. The most, listen to this, the most significant fact about any person is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. In other words, the only thing that really matters is what you think of God in your deepest, innermost being, where no other eye sees. 
That's the true reflection of what you think of God. And it is that and that alone that governs everything about your life. And that's true of all of us here this morning. From the smallest, youngest person to the oldest one here. What we think of God governs everything about our lives. It is this, what we think of God, which will cause us to either stumble at every obstacle or overcome every difficulty. A high view of God is the most urgent need, I am convinced, of the church today. We have forsaken A.W. Tozer rights back in 1950. We have forsaken what we once had as a church, a high majestic view of God. He is transcendent in his glory. There's no God like him. He's incomparable. We would compare him to other things, but he's in a category all to himself. He stands outside of us, and yet he's not, he's not withheld out. He's close to every single one of us, and yet we can't contain him. He's underneath us, but we can't suppress him. He's above us, but we can't hold him away. He invades every area of life. The church once did not assume a knowledge of God. The church used to pursue a higher and higher view of the God of the Bible. This, and this alone, has been the root of a thousand evils in our individual lives, in our homes, and in our churches. And this alone has been forsaken by a great portion of God's people today, the pursuit of a high, majestic view of God. And because our final, eternal destination has taken preeminence over God's glory, the cross of Christ has been turned into a simple means of escaping hell and gaining eternal happiness when the work of Christ was always intended not just to get us out of hell and get us to heaven, but as Peter said, to bring us to God. That's the point of salvation. That's the point of the cross. To bring us to the living God. So my friends, think about it. Right thinking leads to right living. Has it struck you how utterly consumed with God the Apostle Paul is in these verses? It's not really until chapter 3, if you read the letter, that Paul begins to dig into the practical side of what we're to do. You see? He begins with right thinking about God before he gets to how we apply that. Right living. And even then, in chapter 3 going forward, even when it comes to our part in this, he deals with it in terms of response. What is our response to this? Because we can't do anything to gain any of what he's just mentioned in the first two verses. All we can simply do is respond to him. How do I do that? When a person falls in love with Christ, their heart wants to give some sort of expression. And really the practical side of Paul's letters just help in that. There's no merit in it. How do we respond to his infinite love and grace? But before he does that, he deals with the great realities of who God is himself. Paul knows that if we are grounded in a high 
and clear biblical view of God, it will guard us against a thousand errors, a thousand pitfalls, a thousand sins, so many of which we today as evangelicals find ourselves falling in at times. He understands. We've got to start with right thinking. And as we begin to think rightly about God, it will lead to right living. Well, lastly, and what I want us to consider in these verses is that this right view of God will involve all three persons of the Trinity. Notice how Paul seeks to ground these people in the reality of all three persons of the Godhead. He doesn't just focus on the Father. He doesn't just focus on the Son. He doesn't just focus on the Spirit. These people, he's encouraging them to be Trinitarian. Look at verses 3 to 6. He emphasizes the free grace and the infinite love of the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, the Father, in love. He having predestined us, the Father predestined us in love to the adoption as sons, and he did this through the agency of Jesus Christ, to himself, the Father, according to the good pleasure of his, the Father's will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. He's grounding them in the reality of the Father's free grace and glorious unlimited love. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Look at verse 7. He seeks to also ground them in the redemption that's found only in the Son, Verses 7 to 12. In him, not the Father, but the Son. In him, because he just mentioned the beloved in verse 6 there at the end. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation or the fullness of the times, he might gather together in all things in Christ, in one all things in Christ, both things which are in heaven and that which is on earth in Christ. And in Christ, in him, the Son also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. He's grounding them into, he's riveting their attention upon the Son here. The Father's free grace, the redemption that's in the Son. But look at verses 13 and 14. The inward work of the Holy Spirit. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee or the deposit of the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession 
to the praise of his glory. It's not enough, in other words, you see what he's saying. It's not enough to tip your hat to these things and to nod your head and say, I agree, preacher, with everything that you're saying. I agree with Paul. And because I agree with Paul, that must mean that I have the same thing Paul had. Well, that's not true at all, my friends. Just because you agree with Paul doesn't mean that you have what he had. It's not enough to just nod your head at these things. These things, Paul is stressing, must be experientially communicated to you by the Spirit of God. These things must enter into your own living reality if you're going to really have what Paul had. And so here in these verses, what we really see Paul explaining in this triune way is kind of what, like what Tozer said further on in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Understand this, all of God does all that God does. Now what about us as we close? Well, just a few words of application. Let me ask you, in light of that first thing that we considered about what these people got in exchange for their sin, how much do you value Christ? How much do you value his word? How much, can I ask, dare I ask, how much do you value the things of this world, no matter how good they might be? It is the good things, the lawful things I find in my own life of this world the things that were allowed, family, children, a little bit of wealth, or a lot of wealth, it doesn't matter. These are all good things, but I find it's those things, that, the clean things that make the trickiest idols. It's not the bad things, those are obvious. What do you value most? What would you be willing to give up for him? having made a beginning believer, having already started in the Christian walk? Is there any area of your life that you're holding God out of? You're stiff-arming God from? Are you drawing lines with him? You can have this, God. You can have my Sundays. You can have 15 minutes in the morning. Maybe Wednesdays as well. But oh, God, the rest is for me. You can't have my debit card. No, no. You can't have my telly. You can't have those things, God. You know, I, I give you all these things and I'll keep a little bit of this for myself. Is that you? Have you grown to, to determining the terms of your relationship between you and God? There's only one person in that relationship who gets to determine the terms of the relationship. And that is God. And my friends, he says, give me your heart. He wants everything. What do you value in your life? Now, I'm not speaking here this morning to a, I, I, and I know we all understand this. This isn't a room full of unchristianized people, is it? No, no, we're all religious people here this morning, I think, by, for the most part, or we wouldn't be here. So we need to deal with things that apply particularly to us. What do you value? The tricky things. What about your spiritual reputation? What about your spiritual significance, maybe? Do you stand out, maybe, a little bit? A little, little bit more than others, spiritually? At least in your own eyes. Maybe, 
Even here in Britain, it's not so much as the cases in the States, but maybe still a little bit here in Britain, being Christian just means a little bit more. At least it means a little bit something more. It says something to those around us, about us. Would you be willing to be made a fool for Christ's sake? What a fool they say of you in the community. What a fool they say of you at work or at school. Maybe your friends. Maybe even in your church. I've had it in my life. Oh, calm down. Bit too much. Whoa, pipe, pipe down. Pipe down. Don't go overboard. Don't go. I mean, Christ is important, yeah, but not, but not that much, surely. It happens, my friends. It happens. What leads churches to act that way? I hope it's not the case here. I don't know, but I've definitely been in quite a number. And I'm not talking about liberal churches here. I'm talking about nice, conservative, tie-wearing, respectable, conservative evangelicals now. I've got my tie. Okay. I've encountered it. He's a fool. Too much. Calm down a little bit. Or they play the culture card. He's just an American. Get it all the time. American. Are you willing to be made a fool for Christ's sake? Some of the most encouraging Christians I have ever met in my life. Listen, young people. It's not been young people, okay? It is encouraging to to meet young Christian people. It's been the old Christians who were willing to go out of this life on fire for King Jesus at whatever cost. Secondly, and there's three things here, so... And we'll close. Are you in Christ? I mean, that small phrase is one of Paul's favorite, if not the favorite, that he uses in all of his letters. In Christ. In him. Clearly, being in Christ, being united to Christ, is the governing principle, is one of the governing principles of Paul's theology. And of his understanding of Christianity. These great realities, in other words, they're not intended simply to inform. They're intended to transform. They're intended by God, as we said earlier, to enter into your life. Personally. As well as corporately. As a people. Think of it this way. One of my favorite Puritans, one of the 18th century revival guys was a little lesser-known guy named William Grimshaw from Haworth in Yorkshire, I think it is. I've been there. He was a character. The last time my wife took me as a Christmas present two years ago to Haworth because I'd been reading his biography, and like a typical American, I want to go see all the sites, right, and uh, say that I've been there, write home about it. And um, so she takes me there, and I go to the local bookshop, Now this man, he was rough around the edges, but it's exactly what those people needed back then in their day, because it was a rough people. He used to come out of church, right? So they would do morning worship, and they would introduce the Psalter. 
Psalter 119, right? The longest Psalter, take ages to finish. So he would introduce it. He would notice that there were people not there who should be there. He would introduce it and he'd get out of the pulpit and he'd go down from the church and literally just a stone's throw from the church is the local pub. I made Rachel go in so that we could eat there so that I could say I ate there. He would go whip in hand, right? A bull whip in hand. And the men who should have been in church, who were there drinking in the pub their Sunday away, the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, there they were in the pub, and he would come with his bullwhip in hand. Now a man, the account goes, was coming up the cobbled road there in that village, and he sees from the pub people jumping out of the back windows, and he thinks it's on fire. And he runs up to lend some help, because he was wanting to go hear Grimshaw. And uh, I could just go on and on about these stories of Grimshaw. Ask me afterwards if you want to know more. He, the, he goes, what's going on? He thought the pub was on fire. Mad Grimshaw's coming, they said. And Mad Grimshaw comes to the pub. No one's there, obviously. He goes back into the church, and the drunks are on the back row, all sitting there smelling and a bit tipsy still, and, but they're there. Now, I mentioned this uh, to William Grimshaw, to the local bookseller there. Right? This is a well-known story of his. And so I said, I said, do you have any books on William Grimshaw? I want one. I really, I've really been fascinated by this guy. She has no clue, obviously, about the Lord or about William Grimshaw and what he was about. But she knows the name because he's a name in the village. And she said, well, yeah, he's a, he was a bit of an eccentric character. A bit like Isis, she said. I thought, oh, woman, if you only knew... If you only knew, if you only knew. This man loved those men's souls. He wasn't being hard on them. In a sense, he was. It's what they needed. It's what they needed. They needed to hear the word of truth, and he was confident that that was enough to change these people's lives. Now, this William Grimshaw was preaching, and he was a minister before he was converted. And when he was converted, one of the things that led him to conversion to his conversion was this. People came to him with a problem. And he said, I don't know how to help you myself. I don't know how to help my own soul, he said. And that began him thinking. And that stirred a hunger within him for more. And he says of his conversion, this. Again, these realities, are you in him? They were not meant to simply inform, but to transform. And he said this. When the Lord began to work in my soul, it was as if... An angel came down, took my Bible, took it up to heaven, and sent down a new one. Because now it began to speak to me. There was something now that began to register. It was like a new book to him. He was being transformed because he was now being united to Christ by faith. Are you in him? Have you come to him empty-handed? And have you received of him? And then lastly, believer, and we're done. A very sobering question. Have you left your first love? I mean, it's striking, isn't it? What we get just a few years later written about the Ephesian church in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, John is writing to this same church. And here in verse 4 and 5, look at what is written of them. 
He's got encouraging things to say to them, but he also says this, nevertheless, I have this against you. This is the Son of God speaking through the inspired writer to the church. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else. See, people don't think that God has or else these days, but he does. Repent, do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Only a few years later, and this has to be written of the church in Ephesus. Believer, have you left your first love? Has your heart grown cold towards him? Is there anything that you're willing to hold back because the love of the things of this world has invaded and begin to take the place that only Christ belongs in? The throne of your heart. Well, may the Lord help us. Let's pray. Our glorious King, we thank you for this time this morning. Father, help us to live upon these things. Help us to wrestle with our Lord until he blesses us. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to make certain that we are in Christ. No matter how long we've been walking with him, maybe we don't walk with him at all. Oh God, help us to examine ourselves, God. Are we in him? Is he worthy? Is he more to be desired than gold? Even much fine gold? Is his word worth leaping over a stack of money for? Oh Lord, all these kinds of questions help us to wrestle through. That we might think rightly about our king. That we might really value Christ and understand what has been exchanged. Oh God, draw us close to you and to you alone, Lord. Enamor our hearts, enthrall us with a love for the great I am. Oh, it's in our Lord's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.